Thank you, Don. Edwina, those who uh, helped this morning's service so far. Uh, good to be here sharing God's word with you again. Um, we've been looking at uh, who man is. One of the questions that was posed a few weeks ago in one of David's Psalms was, What is man that thou art mindful of him? In other words, what is it about man that, that interests God? Who, who are we? What are we? And um, we've been trying to answer that. We, we started off looking at uh, the nature of man. And also, we, we, I think last week, we started looking at the tripartite nature of man, how we are made up of spirit, a soul, and a body. We looked at the spirit last time, and today we're going to be looking at the soul. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Luke 12, 15 says this, And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will put down my, pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. And we thank you that we can... Look into your word now, during this time. We pray that your spirit would uh, open our minds and our hearts to your truth, that we might grow thereby. Father, I pray that this seed, once again, will be planted there and might take root and flourish and help us to grow in a way that might give you more and more glory each and every day. Father, I pray that you would uh, use me now as an instrument in your hands, that your truth might be shared here this morning. We pray this for your sake and in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last time we looked at the tripartite nature of man and, and what is it about the three parts of man and what, what, parts did, what, what part they actually play. <clears throat> and uh, we looked at 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and it said, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things we saw and we discovered was that when man fell in the garden, the spirit of man died, basically. It became ineffectual in the, in the, the thing that it was created to do, which was create that link between God and man, the spiritual aspect of man. Unfortunately, that died, which left man with a, a functioning soul, but a decaying body. And when the Bible, the Bible says that when the Holy Spirit enters a person, or when a person is born again, their spirit is brought back to life. Their spirit then begins to function as it's meant to function. And once again, the connection is made to God through the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says it in a number of ways, but it says basically in, in, in King James English that our spirits were quickened by God's Spirit. Now, why is man created a tripartite being? Well, basically because Scripture says that we are created in God's image. That has a lot to do with it. Genesis 1.26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So today we're going to be looking at the soul. What is a soul? How does it interact with the spirit, the body? What does it have to do with, with me and who I am? Well, basically, 
go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and we'll start our look at the beginning. The Bible says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Man became a living soul. Man doesn't just have a soul. Man is a living soul. There is a bit of a difference there. Who you are, who I am, really, is a living soul. A soul with its own personality, characteristics and the like. It's really what makes you, you and me, me. Yes, our bodies look different as well. But the soul is where the seat of our affections, our personality, our judgment lies. We've seen that the spirit of man is a sphere where the Holy Spirit operates in. It brought to life our spirits and it continues to operate and communicate to us through that avenue. But scripture says that, actually turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 45. 1 Corinthians 15:45 says, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. That's exactly what it says in Genesis. But then it says, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So while Adam was a living soul, just as every other person after him was a living soul, but he couldn't bring life to anyone else, could he? He was, on a, he was not a quickening soul. He wasn't a, a quickening spirit, he, which meant he could bring life to other people's spirits. He couldn't do that. The Bible says that the last Adam, and anyone who the last Adam is? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the last Adam, was a quickening spirit, which means he could bring life to other people's dead spirits through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what is a soul? What does it do? How does it interact with the spirit and the body? Well, Genesis, let's look at, let's look at this, uh, a few different examples here and we'll see what scripture has to say about the soul. Turn back to Genesis chapter 34 verse 8. We'll look at a few examples now. Genesis 34 verse 8. One simple verse is this. And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem, or Shechem, longeth for your daughter. I pray you give her him to wife. In this verse, we find that the soul is the place of affection and emotion. It's where affection is fostered and begins. And yes, that affection is exhibited through the body and worked through the brain. But the soul is where it's developed and formed. And here we see a specific case of this, this fellow, Shechem, who fell in love with a woman and his soul desired her. It wasn't the spiritual aspect that desired her. It wasn't the body that desired. It was his soul that desired her to be his wife and his father actually makes requests doesn't happen too often these days where the father actually says you know my, my son loves your daughter can you please no first point turn to 1st Samuel chapter 18 verse 1 And we'll see another type of affection. 1 Samuel 18, 1. 
And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Once again, now we see here a brotherly love. We see affection coming from the soul of a, per, of a person. And in this specific case, Jonathan loved David and David loved Jonathan. They had a strong affection and bond with each other. And their souls were knit, the Bible says, together, which is a beautiful way of actually expressing that type of bond. They were knit together. Turn forward to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 8. We'll see a different type of affection again. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore, they said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? David hates the blind and the lame. What is that going on about? Well, <clears throat> when David became king, he ruled for a number of years from a place called Hebron. Okay? He wasn't ruling from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was, was a stronghold. It was, a very, it was what was called a fortified city. It was basically a fortress on top of a, a mountain or a hill, that was almost impregnable. And you know who lived there? The Jebusites. The Jebusites were a group of people that lived in that area and in that fortress. And David's, I think, had been directed by the Lord to take that city and eventually that would become his capital and the capital. <clears throat> but what happened was, when he went there, they would jeer him and make fun of him and they said to him, you're not going to break into this place. You and your, your bunch of, uh, of people, of guys over there. And there's ever two ways this, this verse is interpreted. Either they were saying to him, you have to get through our idols first to break into this place. Because David at one point, David hated idols. We know that. In Psalm Chapter 115, verse 4, he says this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. David had quite a disdain for the idols that were very prevalent in the nations that were around them. And the Jebusites had their idols. So one of the interpretations is that they were saying, you've got to get through our gods before you get to us, and there's no way you're going to break through. And David called their idols dumb or, or blind and lame. And David broke through. One of, the, one of the things the Bible says that, if you look at that verse, the things that were hated of his soul. Soul is also the place where hatred is. So the soul is a place or the seat of emotions and affections. It's also the place where we do all our judging. Also the place where we reason and we, have, we make all our judgments about things. It's the soul where desires are conceived, where love and hate exist, where choices are made in life. But the soul of man... And all his affections and desires are never directed toward God until a person is born again. The object of a man's desires, emotions and that are not directed toward God before he gets saved. Man cannot love God nor the things of God until he is born from above. Before this time, his affections, his focus are primarily upon who? Himself. He is the focus of his own affections, emotions. All the other emotions really are simply a byproduct of the great love and affection that he has for himself. And we even see this 
occurring in, uh, in uh, altar calls. <clears throat> Anyone know? They've done a, they did a survey a number of years ago about the number of people who actually stayed Christians, let's say, after they had been to an altar call. Anyone has it a guess as to once people had gone up to the front and given their lives and had been prayed on and all this sort of stuff, how many of them actually hung around at all and hadn't changed their lives? Is that, is that, do I hear 10%? 10%, not even 10%. I think it's about five. So out of 100 people that, that would average, and this is done across all different types of denominations, so I'm not, uh, I'm not saying it's one particular denomination, but across a whole range of denominations in the States, out of 100 people that would go up to an, an answer an altar call, 95 would then go missing the week after and no one would see them anymore. Genuine conversions? I don't think so. The Bible says a genuine conversion then produces fruit in the person's life and that person then hangs around. That person then stays to the end. My point here is that many of those people who went to the front cried tears of repentance of emotions, they were full of emotions. Many of them would weep bitterly and still were dead in their trespasses and sins. What's going on? All the deceptions taking place. People are very good at playing games. People are very good at playing the part during their lives. You know what I'm talking about. Most people are very good at playing a certain part without actually being that part. It's in the soul where a person lies, covers things up, pretend that they're all right, that everything will be fine in their lives, when deep down they really know it's not. And it's here where the word of God must do its work. It's here that the word of God focuses to try to change bad patterns of behaviour, habits and thoughts that have been formed in a person's life. It's in our souls where destructive patterns of thought and false perceptions of reality exist. And it's the word of God that breaks those false perceptions and, and self-deception more than anything else to help a person see who they really are. After a person is born again, the Bible says that their spirit comes alive. So all of a sudden... The, the spiritual part of that person awakens. They can know the truth. The problem is the soul that over the years has developed many, many bad habits that need breaking. The person, the average person has plenty of bad habits, plenty of wrong ways of thinking, plenty of ways of, of actually responding to certain circumstances and situations in an unbiblical way. And then they have to learn how to change those ways to God's ways. That's why the Bible says, be renewed in your mind. And it's God's word that renews our mind, our way of thinking. I'll give you an example of some of these things that still exist in people's lives. Even after they're born again, most Christians still have plenty of bad habits. When a person sins, for instance, and I brought this up as an example at the, on a Wednesday night, and they get really upset about the fact that they've sinned, right? We've been there. We've all been there, okay? The frustration and, the, and, the, and, the, um, and the being upset and those sorts of things. <clears throat> the question is, who has been offended? Is it... When I weep over my sin, when I, when I get upset about the next time I fall into a sin or do something that I know I don't want to do, and I get upset about it, why am I upset? Is it, is it that I'm upset that I couldn't do it, that I've let myself down again? Is it? Is it, is it that I haven't reached 
the level that I've wanted to achieve in my life. So I've, I've, I've bruised my ego once again because I haven't been able to achieve the thing that I wanted to achieve. Or is it that I've offended a holy and righteous and loving God? Very, two very different focuses there. One is focus on me. And there are plenty of people in the world who try to achieve a lot of good things, don't they? Who have goals in their lives and they try to improve their, their, their way they're, they're living and things, like, things of that nature. And they also get upset. But they don't get upset because they've offended the Lord. They've upset him. They've broken a promise to him. They ups, they're upset because they haven't fulfilled their own obligations. Or they haven't met their own standards. Their own ego is bruised. One is self-worship and the other one is the worship of God. There is a massive difference between those two things. On the outside, they look very similar. But on the inside, they're very, very different. This is what I'm speaking about when I'm, I'm talking about the soul and the way it can actually deceive the person themselves and the way that God's, God's word needs to break, continue to break bad habits and bad ways of thinking. Many of those people who answered that altar call probably saw the benefits of being a Christian. The companionship, the support, the overwhelming emotion that came along with going to the front and, and being part of something that was special. But many of them never really came to know Jesus Christ. Many were playing a game with themselves and with God. Man's desires and affections are turned toward God when he realises his sinful condition and God's amazing salvation and the gift that's offered. When the Spirit of God illuminates the spirit of man with divine light and life, the man yields his affections to God. In other words, God then becomes the focus of his affections. God is the pivotal thing of his life. He revolves around God rather than everything else revolving around him. God takes the throne, as it were, in that person's heart. And no, I don't believe that a person accepts Jesus Christ as just saviour and then later down the track can decide to choose him as Lord later on. You take him for who he is first up. He is Lord and saviour. <coughs> So why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning, you need to humble yourself before God. Otherwise, that person remains their own God. Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. Mary could only say that because she recognised Jesus as her Saviour. She recognised it was God who was the most important thing. It was God that she had to rely on for all her life and everything. And the initial triumph is in the spirit of man. When Jesus Christ is acknowledged as personal saviour and the soul bows to him as Lord. In David's psalm he says, He restoreth my soul. Psalm 23.3. The Hebrew word restoreth literally means turn back. It was God when David fell that restored his soul. Even though David had sinned, God still was the centre of his life. It was God who brought him back. Just as the spirit is a sphere in which the spirit of God has direct influence, so the soul is a sphere of activity where Satan directs his efforts. It's the soul where Satan does most of his work. It's the, the soul is the battleground of a person's being. The fight between the spirit and the flesh. It's that, that, that place 
where it's being pulled in two different directions. It's that place where the choices of life are made. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which what? War against the soul. There's a fight on for our souls. Even now, Satan would have us yield our souls to him to make us totally ineffectual as Christians. Fleshly lusts are those devices used by Satan to control a person's soul. Satan has a number of avenues of attack into a person's soul. The beautiful thing about the Christian is that God has given the Christian the ability to reason and to see what's going on through his word and through the spirit, which communicates with him. We have the ability not just to react to everything, to every lust that comes, that arises in our flesh. We have the ability to look at that, to respond to it in a, in a, um, a reasonable sort of manner. Lust conceived can either be through the flesh, and the flesh acts like a bit of a hook to get the, uh, the person drawn in, or is the result of self-love and pride, or, the Bible says, the lust of the eyes that draw a person's attention away from where they should be looking, and vain imaginations start taking place. That's why... It's a sin for a man to commit adultery in the flesh, right? And it's also a sin, a sin for a man to, to look at a woman to lust after her. One is a sin of the flesh. The other one is actually a sin through the eyes and then the imagination that takes place. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. John summarises these three avenues of Satan's attack in a person's soul, very clearly. First John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. They're your three main areas of attack that Satan tends to use over and over and over again. It's the soul, it's, it's the area of the soul where decisions are made, where choices are made. But Satan also uses, remember I said that's, that the soul is the, the seat of affections, it's also the seat of emotions. We're, God created us emotional beings. The question is, which way do our emotions actually bring us? Satan realises the weakness that's inherent in man because of his emotions. And that's another area of attack that he uses. And the pride of life is strongly attached to a person's emotions. Instead of reasoning, which God has given the Christian the ability to do, people rely and are steered by their emotions most of the time. Let me ask you a simple question. Are you or someone you know the type of person who is more likely to react with their emotions rather than seeing reason first? When something occurs, when a circumstance comes up, what's the first thing that, that arises in a person's uh, mind? Emotions or reason? It's emotions. Emotions are always the quickest to come up and well up. The question then is, how do you work with those emotions? Do you let the emotion take you in a certain direction or do you reason through the situation. Let me give you an example. Philip doesn't say good morning to me as he walks in the church. 
You said good morning to me. That's all right. You're okay today. Let's say Philip doesn't say good morning to me as he walks in the church. Okay? What's going to be the first emotion that, that comes, to, comes to mind? Pride. My pride wells up and says, well, oh, hang on, my pride's been hurt here. What's wrong? What did I do? Why is he, what's he got against me? And then as I play around with that in my mind, it, the emotion gets stronger. If I play with the emotion, the emotion actually gets stronger. The next week, and I don't talk to Philip, next week, Philip walks in again. And he doesn't say hello again. Well, that's the end of the world now, isn't it? Now Philip really has something against me. What did I do to him? I mean, I don't, I've only ever been nice to the guy. I only ever compliment him on what he wears. He's got a nice red tie on today. But he, what did I do to deserve this? What's he got against me? Why can't he, as a Christian, right? If he's got a problem with me, the Bible says he should come to me and tell me there's something wrong, shouldn't he? Do you see how I've chased after my emotions rather than go to Phil and say, hey, how are you, Phil? Everything all right? And Phil will say, oh, yeah, mate, I'm, I've had a really busy week and my neck's killing me at the moment and I can only look in one direction, so I'm only seeing you. <laughs> Listen, Philip, you always come in handy for a good illustration. Amen. Amen. Okay, this is the area of attack that Satan gets us in time and time again. We have an emotion that wells up. Whether true or not, Satan uses it against us to reason in illogical ways and unreasonable ways. And we can even use scripture to back ourselves up in the wrong way. If the, spirit of God is, if the spirit of man is where the spirit of God works in and communicates through, well, Satan does his direct attack straight through, through the flesh into the soul. That's where he works. And straight into the soul. And Satan's appeals often come through the weakness of our flesh as well. He's got this body which feels pain and weakness and tiredness and everything else that goes along with being a human he uses that against us as well. Ever heard of the saying, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak? Well, you know something? If you've got an army and you're, you're fighting a battle, do you attack the strongest point of the army of, of, the, uh, of the battlefront or do you try to break through to the weak, the weak point? You break through where the weakness is and Satan uses our weak flesh against us time and time again. He knows he's been at this game for a very, very long time. The weakness that we experience in the flesh is not something that Adam would have necessarily had to contend with as much as we do today. But weakness in our flesh is something that Satan uses time and time against us. Let me ask you a question. Now, think about this carefully. Are you a more reasonable person when you're tired? Are you? No, I don't, I don't think so, because I know I'm not. When I'm tired, I'm less able to reason properly. Let me ask you another one. When you're stressed, are you? Are you and you've got a thousand things flying around in your mind, are you more likely to be able to reason something through? If Philip doesn't say good morning to you when he comes in the church, are you more likely to brush up and say, oh, no, it's all right? Or are you more likely to say, what's wrong with him? Let me ask you again. Are you a more reasonable and considerate person when you're in pain? Another interesting one, isn't it? Sometimes when you're in pain, you tolerate less. You're able to reason less. Now, Satan uses that against us. Turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 38.
Matthew 26, verse 38 says, and this is, the Lord is about to be betrayed and, and, and to be taken away. Um, and he makes a simple request. Jesus needs to pray. And his, and his soul is sorrowful at that stage. Verse 38 says, Then saith uh, he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. And saith unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, we find in this passage a very simple illustration. And the illustration is that there was need for prayer and watching. Jesus knew the circumstances that were surrounding him. He knew it was coming up. He knew that not only he needed to pray, but also his disciples needed to pray as well. Because there, there, there would come a time very shortly when they would be scattered. When he would be taken and they would, would run in all different directions. He already had told Peter you'd be, that he would betray him. Now they were tired, granted. They're, they're, they were probably physically tired. Probably been a very busy day for them, long day. But then there's this tussle taking place. What do I do? Do I pray with the Lord or do I go to sleep? How many of them fell asleep? All of them. Not one. Stayed awake for an hour to pray with the Lord. They had a battle going on in their, in their minds at that stage. Their bodies were telling them, I want to go to sleep. The Spirit was telling them, you need to stay awake and pray. And they failed in that request. They were more... They listened more to their flesh than to their spirit. And this is, the, this is the challenge for every Christian. They sinned at that stage, didn't they? It was a sin. It wasn't a gross sin, let's say, that they, you know, they committed adultery, but they failed in what they had been asked to do. They failed in something. The Lord would not have asked them to do something they couldn't do, so they could have done it, but they failed. This is our challenge every time. You see, there is... Two things vying for our attention here. Our soul is the seed of where we make our choices, where our emotions and our affections lie. There are two things pulling at us. There's our spirit which is telling us, go and pray, read your word, and continue to be faithful in the things that God has asked you to do. It's the spirit that leads us into conversations with people. It's the spirit that says, go and speak to that person over there. Or... When a conversation is happening with an unsafe person, he opens the door and he says, come walk through here. The question is what we are listening to at the time. Are we listening to our bodies? Are we listening to, our, to, our, um, to, to Satan working through the different lusts that we have? The problem that we have is the spirit normally speaks softly. The flesh and Satan normally scream very loudly. We need to be trained. We need to have trained ears to be able to hear what the Spirit is saying. This is something that's not learnt overnight. This is something we need to develop and foster to be able to hear the soft-spoken voice of the Spirit of God as compared to all the screaming that's going on around us. When Satan tempted Eve in the garden... Satan attacked her from every avenue. He attacked her through the lust of the eyes. The fruit was beautiful to behold. It, was, it says the fruit looked good. The lust of the flesh, she said it was good for food. And then he also attacked her through the pride of life. He appealed to her pride. By saying that if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You will know good and evil. You will be a very wise person. And she fell for those three areas of attack. 
Satan still plays the same game today. A battleground occurred in Eve's soul. She was being pulled between the spirit and the flesh. And Satan won that, that particular battle. The Bible says that our spirits have been made new in the Lord. Turn to Leviticus chapter 5. Leviticus chapter 5. I want you to notice the word soul in this passage. Leviticus chapter 5 verse 1. And if a soul sin and hear the voice of swearing and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of it, if he do not utter it, then he shall bear his iniquity. Or if a soul touch any clean thing, unclean thing, whether it be a carcass of an unclean beast or a carcass of an unclean cattle or the carcass of an unclean creeping things, and if it be hidden from him, he shall also be unclean and guilty. Or if he touch the uncleanness of man, whatsoever uncleanness it is, it be that a man shall be defiled withal. And if he hid from him, when he knoweth of it, then he shall be guilty. Or if a soul swear, pronouncing with his lips to do, do evil or to do good, whatsoever it be that a man shall pronounce with an oath, and if he hid from him, then he knoweth, when he knoweth of it, then he shall be guilty of one of these." Notice how he says, if a soul swear, if a soul touch any unclean thing, if a soul swear. Well, the soul is listed over and over and over again in the commandments. If a soul does this or a soul does that. You know why? Because it's the soul, part of us, that actually makes the decisions about these things. It's the soul in man that makes, that directs his affections to love, to hate, to do, to undo, to follow or to lead. It's the soul in us. That is a thing that God holds accountable. When a person goes, is sent to hell, his body doesn't, isn't sent to hell, is it? The body stays and decays here. It's the soul that is, in, that is in hell. Satan knows full well that if he can dominate the soulish or physical part of a man, he doesn't care whether that person goes to church or doesn't go to church. If he's got them in over a person's soul, he doesn't care. He knows his victim is a creature of emotions and it doesn't matter if those emotions are stirred up and there's weeping or there's sentiment, uh, sentimentalism or tears as long as that person's spirit doesn't come in contact with the spirit of God. Then he's okay. You see, the danger of many modern churches is they appeal to the emotions more than the reason they appeal through to the area straight away that Satan has as, has as a weakness in man or uses against man. Because the soul is the seat of passions, the feelings, the desires. And Satan is satisfied if he can keep these things under control. If Satan can keep your emotions aroused, if he can keep your attention on the superficial, because emotions are often very superficial, then he's doing his job okay. Many churches, unfortunately, use the same principles that Satan uses to keep, to keep people bound to bring people and keep people in church, believe it or not. They use the same principles. The lust of the eyes. Well, you know, most modern churches have to have you know, a very colourful, vibrant surrounding. They have to make sure that everything looks schmick. Plenty of coloured lights need to be there. Plenty of everything else that appeals to the eyes. The lust, of the, the, lust of the, um, the lust of the flesh. They use every modern psychological technique to keep people smiling, whether it's repetitive music, loud music, emotional and repetitive songs, swaying, chanting. Uh, sorry, what was that? Coffee. Coffee. Coffee's a good one too. It's a weakness in there. They use all these different things to try to keep people hooked in, thinking that if they've got them there, if they can appeal to those things, the person will stay. Then there's the pride of life. You know, one of the things that I've realised in modern churches, what they do, they, and one of their hallmarks 
is they immediately push new converts into ministries. They get them busy in the ministry. They promote them through the ranks very quickly because you know something? It appeals to their ego. It appeals to their pride of life. Hey, I've got an important position in the church. I'm important here. I've, I'm doing this. I, you know, I became a deacon after you know, oh, six months. That's what they do. They promote them quickly. They hook them up in ministries, even though the Bible says they need to be qualified to actually get into that. Guarantee, you go into a modern Pentecostal church, AOG, whatever it is, or community church, they call them these days, you'll find that, that the people that are in those positions look at their life, look at their knowledge of the Bible, look at, look at all the other things, you'll find them sadly lacking. You'll find them in many cases, unqualified to even be in that role, either as a deacon or even a pastor. So they use the same things to trap people as Satan uses to trap people. Emotions are often used to anaesthetise the faculty of reason. See, reason and emotions often play a very difficult this is sort of two sides to the same coin, but they, they, they play a very um, uncomfortable uh, role together. Emotion often takes us in directions where reason won't take us. But if reason follows emotion, you're in trouble. Scripture can, always teaches that facts go before feelings, never the other way around. Your feelings are never a gauge of whether something's right or wrong. In fact, feelings often lead us in totally wrong areas in life. Ever heard the phrase, if it feels good, do it? Does it feel right? Does it feel right? Now, that's a good one. Does it feel right? How does something feel right? On what foundation is a feeling a measure of something, whether something's right or wrong? But that is the foundation that we have in our society. If it feels right, do it. If it feels good, do it. And if you can keep the emotions continually stirred, they anesthetise the ability to reason. As long as a person is made to feel good, they won't question what they're actually doing, whether it's right or wrong. As long as it feels good, I'm going to continue doing it. I'm not going to bother questioning what I am doing. But feelings and emotions, desires and affections should never be used as a gauge of right and wrong. This is because... There are just as many things which feel good which are wrong as things which feel good which are right. And it's difficult to work out which one is which unless you have a foundation. Let me ask you, let me ask you this. Would people get drunk if it didn't feel good? Or, or not get drunk? People wouldn't get drunk if it didn't feel good. People wouldn't smoke if it didn't feel good. People wouldn't take drugs, have intercourse outside of marriage, drive fast, use foul language, gossip, lie, cheat, steal. And I'm going to continue on and on and on. I could go on all day. All these things that people do, which we call sin, make people feel what? Good. Because if I didn't make them feel good, they wouldn't do them. Sure, the feeling doesn't last very long. It may only last a short time. But what's my solution to that? Hey, I just can do it again. And then do it again and do it again. Because when I start coming down off that, off that ride and I start feeling bad about myself, when my conscience starts playing with me and I start feeling, you know, have feelings of regret, hey, let's just do it one more time. That'll make me forget about what I've just been doing. Because I'm feeling good. This is the culture that we live in. This is the world that we live in. Satan has people properly bound with their emotions and their feelings and all that other stuff that he uses very well. I can suppress feelings of guilt. I can anesthetise the pain that I've got deep down inside with more and more pleasure. We must be very careful about our emotions 
and we should always view them with caution. Is is an emotion that's welling up in me coming from a godly perspective or is it coming from a worldly perspective? And Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He knows it. And when he gives us his word, this is our mirror. This knows our heart. God's word knows our heart. Put that aside and rely on your feelings and you are in for a world of hurt. You are in for a terrible time. Now just quickly, when a person dies, their soul leaves their body. Did you know that? I'm assuming you did. Okay? There's a, it was an illustration I was going to give that when Rachel was um, dying, it says that, and it came to pass as her soul was departing, that she called his name Benoni. When she was trying to give birth, she died during childbirth. As she was, the Bible says, as her soul was departing, she named him. For the believer, the soul goes directly to be with Jesus. The person knows where they're going to be as soon as they, after they die. And it won't be in a grave. The Bible says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. During the tribulation, remember we get new bodies when we're, when we're raptured? During the tribulation... When people are killed by the Antichrist or murdered, where do they go? Turn to Revelation 6 9. You've forgotten all those sermons that I gave you in Revelation for a whole year. I've got to start them again, I think. Revelation 6 9. Well done. Revelation 6 9 says. And when he'd opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto uh, every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest it for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. Their souls were under the altar in heaven. They were seeking justice from God for what had occurred to them. They were seeking justice upon the Antichrist. Unlike Eastern religions, the Bible teaches that what makes you you goes on after death. It's still there. Your individuality still exists. It doesn't disappear into the ether. That is not the goal here. The goal is that God created us individuals. Who we are, our self-awareness, continues after our physical bodies have died. This is the seed of the soul. Who I am, my regrets, my choices... My emotions all continue to exist after I die. Those who have rejected God and have not availed themselves of the offer that God makes to all people are also well aware of their circumstances. So the saved and the unsaved are well aware of who they are, what they have done in the past and where they are at that stage. Turn back to Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Go back to the very first passage that we read. Luke 12, 15. And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought with himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. 
And I will say, this is an interesting one, I will say to my soul, soul, thou has much goods laid up for many years. You know, yourself looking at yourself in the mirror, saying, Frank, you're doing well at the moment. You're doing well for yourself. You've got plenty of stuff. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Now fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. His soul was about to depart from his body. Then whose shall all these things be which thou hast provided? You see, the soul is the avenue or the, or the seat of the affections of man and his affections were the goods that he had. His affections were to take his ease, to eat, to drink and be merry. His soul was given to the world and he had lost his soul because of its affections, of his choices. Once again, we see the warning to flee the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Because in the end, every man will give an account for his or her soul. Who you are is very important today. What do you as an individual believe? What choices have you made? What road are you on at the moment? Jesus gives a very simple instruction. He says to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. Whosoever he, uh, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What can you give in exchange for your soul? How important is your soul to you? You and I were created eternal beings. Not eternity past. We're created for an eternity in the future. Never to finish. What are we doing now? What path are we on now? What choices have we made now? Have we allowed Satan to control us, manipulate us, tempt us into doing things and being things that we aren't meant to do and be? Who does your soul belong to at this moment? Because it can only belong to one or two. It either belongs to the Lord or it belongs to yourself, which means it belongs to Satan, which means it belongs ultimately in hell. Only two places your soul can be. Are your soul's affections upon the one who truly loves you and gave his life for you? Is that where your affections are focused on today? Is that where your affections and your focus will be when you walk out the door? Or is it when we walk out the door that our affections all of a sudden change and switch to something else? Because if they do, then there's a very good likelihood that your soul doesn't belong to him. Is your soul focused so much in the world that will soon be gone, judged and condemned? Used by Satan to trap and blind those through their own weaknesses of their flesh, their eyes and their pride. It's your choice. It's your future. And it's, what it, it's exactly what it is. God has given you an ability to choose and he says, choose life. Don't choose death. None will be able to answer for you. You can't use anyone else as an excuse on that day when your soul is before God. You can't answer for anyone else. You will give an account of your own life, your own choices, the paths you've travelled. And you know something? All the excuses that, you, that may be flying around in your head... Oh, but I've had a bad upbringing, I had bad parents, I had bad this and that, my opportunities weren't good, I've been this and I've been that. Don't fly. It won't stick. What does your soul say to you now? What does your soul say to you now? Or more importantly, what is the Spirit of God saying to you right now? If you died right now and your soul leaves your body, this very moment... Where will you find yourself? I think deep down, we all know the answer to that question. Deep down. 
if we if we push through all the emotions and and the, and the the games and the lies and the and all the the false reality that we like to build up around ourselves to make ourselves feel good, deep down we know your conscience will confirm it. The question is what you do about it. What choice will you make? How long will you keep from making that choice? Because in the end, if you fail to make the choice, you've chosen wrong. God bless you.